0: And thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Rising temperatures are making hard outdoor jobs even harder, and agricultural workers are especially vulnerable.
2: There are low-wage workers who are living in rural communities where there's much less resources to get assistance. And they may talk about how it's 112 degrees today, but I have to get the work done which
3: can lead to life and death situations. You tend to think sort of that the supervisors have your back. And then when you realize quickly that sometimes they don't and that they almost killed your son, you can really transform into someone who's gonna not let that happen anywhere else. But it often takes great
0: courage to make that difference.
4: It's a hardship on both uh, the workers and also for the employers. For the workers, it's always a health issue. For the employers, it's an economic issue. chasing the harvest
0: in the heat, up next on Climate One. How are rising temperatures affecting agriculture and the farm workers in the fields? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One Conversations, with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Climate change is altering weather all over, in some cases with surprising results. In the summer of 2017, for example, the South and Midwest were cooler than average, but the western third of the United States was hotter than usual, and California and Nevada saw record high temperatures. That matters if you like to eat fruits and vegetables grown in California, which has the largest farm economy in dollar terms. But it may matter most to the farm workers who harvest and pick those fruits and vegetables. Later in the program, we'll hear from Dolores Huerta, the labor and civil rights advocate who co-founded what is now the United Farm Workers Union. First, we hear from three guests on stage. Gabriel Thompson is author of Chasing the Harvest, Migrant Workers in California Agriculture, Blanca Benuelos is co-director of the Migrant Unit for California Rural Legal Assistance. And Anne Thrupp is director of the Food Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Here's our conversation about chasing the harvest in the heat.
1: Blanca Benuelos, let's begin with you. You have two parents who were farm workers and tell us what it was like growing up with parents who were working in the fields.
2: So both of my parents came from Jalisco, Mexico. And they migrated to California and migrated throughout the state, um, with, depending on the crop. And they migrated from California to Oregon and Washington, ultimately settling in Stockton, California, which is where I was born and raised. And my parents would take me to the fields with them. I have lots of photos of myself in the field sitting there on a blanket as they were working. And they said um, f- other farm workers would sit there and take turns babysitting me because. That's the way they worked with each other. And they all you know, helped each other out because it was a community. And then um, I saw a lot of injustices as a young girl, seeing that my parents didn't speak English. They were treated differently. And so since I was young, I wanted to be an attorney. So I decided to go to law school, went to law school in LA. And then I became an attorney, returned back to Stockton on a two-year fellowship to work representing farm workers. And now I'm at CRLA, and it's 13 and a half years later.
1: And when you drive around with your parents and they look at the conditions now on the farms, what do they say
2: they 're surprised um, by the improvement. Um, you know my mother frequently comments how back when I was working in the fields, there was no shade, no one put up shade, nobody cared about giving us water um, and so she 's happy to see that she 's not working in the fields anymore, but she 's happy to see some changes, although um, she f- has friends who are still working in the fields and they continue to talk about issues. They're, they're different issues now than, than they were back then.
1: Anthrop, tell us about your grandfather's garden and how that pointed to where you are today.
5: Yes, when I was very young, I um, was exposed at, a, at an early age to my grandfather's interest in growing food. And um, I have Both sides of my family, my mother and my father, have parents who were... Gardeners and uh, always grew their own food. So I got very interested from a very early age, and my parents also followed in that tradition. So, so my earliest memories are of my grandfather um, in our garden. Um, I also had a very early interest in international issues and global issues and the livelihoods of people from a very early time. So by the time I was in junior high school, I actually wrote a report on the world food problems and had a very um, strong interest and I think that, again, was shaped by my parents and grandparents, who were very concerned about the livelihoods of people and had a strong moral moral values about the other people. And I actually want to start um, my comments today by thanking the farm workers throughout the United States and the world who are contributing to the welfare of so many people. I think very often farm workers are completely invisible when we eat our meals on a daily basis. We're in a privileged situation, I'm in a privileged situation, and I feel very fortunate to be able to appreciate that, and um, so I, I feel that, you know, a lot of my work has been on this intersection with social agriculture and environmental issues, but fundamentally people are what makes the difference.
1: I grew up in Monterey County, which is about 100 miles south of San Francisco, big agricultural county, artichokes, a lot of strawberries come from there. And I always tell my kids as we're driving through going to visit grandparents, uh, you see those people out there bending over, that you know, they're picking the strawberries that you put on your breakfast cereal in the morning, and and, uh, doesn't that look like really hard work, and uh, so thanks for that. Gabriel Thompson, tell us how you came to write the book, uh, Chasing the Harvest, where you followed uh, migrant workers who uh, put the food on our uh, tables across the country.
3: Yeah, in uh, 2006, 2007, there was a really big backlash against uh, immigrants, and one of the real gaps I I kind of felt reading articles about this was that the people writing the articles or who were criticizing the immigrants had never stepped foot inside a chicken processing plant or a lettuce field. Um, And so one thing I thought was important to do was to go out there and to the extent that I could, and it turns out I got jobs, uh, work in those industries. Not to so much make a political point, but instead to just for all these um, English-speaking US citizens who talk so much about what immigrants do here. uh, If you've never been in those workplaces, you're very ignorant about that. And so I thought one thing I would like to do is go in and do that work just to sort of describe the, the workers that I met, what the work was like, how quickly it destroyed me, you know? I had this idea before I went into the, I worked two months in the lettuce fields of Yuma, Arizona. For a couple of weeks beforehand, I had this plan of doing push-ups and sit-ups, and, <laughs> and then I get out there and it's like, within five minutes I'm, I'm wearing like a t-shirt, and uh, I'm sweating profusely, and my coworkers are bundled up in pants and hooded sweatshirts, and they're looking at me, and they're kind of shivering, and they're also going way faster than me. And I realize, like, okay, I have a lot to learn here, and those push-ups uh, is not the way to become a seasoned <laughs> farm worker. So that, the, the other thing I think that really struck that was important for me in doing that is that I had an impression of farm workers before I actually went out in the fields and met with them and hung out with them for two months, the same crew. So you're eating meals each time, you're telling jokes all the time, you're, you're sort of a, a family for a couple months. Uh, the work was hard, it was low-paid, but what I really could never have gotten from reading articles about farm workers was that there was a real sense of community there, and solidarity, and also pride, and they enjoyed the work. And so they would go from crew to crew, sometimes a relative would die, that they need, wanted to be able to send back the grandma to mexico and they didn't have the money for it and so they would go from crew to crew in the morning and ask for people to open their wallets and these were people they really didn't know much about and every time folks would pull out their wallets and give what they could and so there was a real sense i think for me of not just the hardships but the joys of of farm workers so segueing into this new book which is this oral history collection of 17 farm workers across the state of california I think of it as a chance uh, for you to, for the reader to invite 17 people into your living room and have them talk about what matters for them in their lives, both the challenges, the joys, so that you, they, they emerge as people that are just as sort of complicated in the relationships of work as any of us are. And when you make that move, then you, for me at least, it makes me be able to see them in ways that are much less exotic and much more able to be identified with.
1: One of the workers that you write about, his name is Roberto. So tell us his story and and particularly what happened to his son.
3: Roberto lives in, uh, well, at this point in 2005, he was living in Bakersfield. He had come from Mexico. Um, He had been fired from a job because he had been disrespected from a boss. It was a great job, but he couldn't handle being disrespected. This is a theme that goes throughout his life. And so he's fired and he decides to take his family up to work in the grape fields of Bakersfield. And his son, Angel, starts working with him at the age of 13. And at the age of 15, in 2005, they're harvesting grapes in Bakersfield. And 2005 is a really important year to look at uh, California's response to farm workers dying from heat, because in that summer, Four farm workers died. 12 workers across the state of California died from heat exposure, not just in the fields, but also maybe roofing. And it was in that summer that Roberto was working next to his son. And it was a 106-degree day in Bakersfield. And he was working for a company at that point who was one of the few that refused to provide canopies for shade. They also, if you were packing grapes, they refused to have um, tables so you could kind of stand and do it. So you had to kneel on the desert floor in the Sun and pack the grapes and the idea was somehow because your nose is right up against the grapes and you're on your knees you're gonna have a you're gonna pack the product better uh, uh, his son starts feeling ill he tells Roberto he's not feeling ill. Roberto goes to tell him go relax have some water the foreman comes over and says I'm not paying for you to relax and have water so he starts working again very quickly gets ill apparently is not brought to a hospital and for two days Um, he's sort of suffering at home, the son, at this primitive labor camp that they're living in. At some point, the United Farm Workers realize that Roberto's son is really ill. They knock on his door, they see his son, and they say, you need to get this guy to the hospital in Bakersfield. So they they rush him there. He very quickly is diagnosed with extreme heat exhaustion, and also that had led to a a compromised immune system, and he had meningitis, and he went into a coma, and he nearly died. That was the tragic part. What came out of that, though, was Roberto becoming someone who uh, was a fearless advocate for protecting farm workers in the state and went and testified. uh, He's undocumented. Went and testified in Sacramento, was a key person in terms of the state passing the most stringent heat protection regulations. And so I think for him it was a, a real, in looking at his story, a real example of how both you tend to think sort of that the supervisors have your back in some way, and then when you realize quickly that sometimes they don't, and that they almost killed your son, that you can really transform into someone who's going to make sure that, to the best of his ability, he's going to not let that happen anywhere else. And he continues his activism for the day. So right now he works in the Coachella Valley, he lives in a community called Thermal which, as you can guess, is extremely hot. This year they broke records for a 122-degree day. But that takes a cell phone out to the fields and records surreptitiously abuses in the fields and puts them on Facebook and social media. And so I've really been sort of a, a guy who, as a, as a kind of a farm worker, a journalist, who feels like there are all these great stories out there in the field, but there aren't journalists there. And so he's going to be sort of a citizen, farm worker, journalist to try to depict the abuses going on. So I found his story, you know, really inspiring and also sort of the way, evidence in ways you can dramatically change sort of the way you think about who you are and the role you play.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about chasing the harvest in the heat. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about farm workers and rising temperatures with Blanca Banuelos, co-director of the Migrant Unit for California Rural Legal Assistance, Gabriel Thompson, author of Chasing the Harvest, Migrant Workers in California Agriculture, and Anne Thrupp, director of the Food Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Here's your host, Greg
1: Dalton. Welcome, Manuelos. uh, Heat is rising, searing heat uh, in the American West, Southwest. What protections are farmers required to offer to workers who are working in this increasing heat?
2: So employers have a a long list of responsibilities when it comes to protecting workers from heat stress. Um, Some of those include having shade up once the temperature is 80 degrees, So as soon as they know that the temperature is going to be 80 degrees, the shade has to be up and ready and it has to be set up. It cannot be in the truck, for example, it cannot be a mile away, it has to be set up. And the shade has to cover at least 25% of the workforce. Um, Workers are entitled to take a recovery rest period if they need one, if they're feeling nauseous or feeling sick in any way. Employers have to provide cool and fresh water and they have to provide approximately two quarts of water per worker for every eight hours and it has to be replenished Um, other responsibilities include making sure that the employees have access to restrooms as well and then the other thing i would add about the shade is the shade has to be sufficient so we have had some employers for example argue the grapevines are shade are sufficient shade, and um, they're not, right? And so um, we have had to work uh, with CalOSHA, which is the California state agency that is charged with um, overseeing health and safety in the workplace. Um, Other protections also include, um, there has to be a safety protection program in place, and the employer also has to have a program in place when they have to call the paramedics, for example. And so we do community outreach and education on these issues. That way workers understand their rights. One thing we also like to you know, highlight to workers is try to have a sense of where you're at, right? Because once you're out in the field, if you call the paramedics and you just say, I'm in the middle of you know, uh, Modesto, California, which is about an hour and a half east of San Francisco, that might not mean anything to a paramedic, right? And so we, we tell workers, try to have a sense of, you know, what, what's the nearest cross streets, right? And so those are all employer responsibilities. And so in the case that um, Gabriel was talking about um, with uh, the worker's son, that is something we continue to hear today, that although employers have the responsibility to take employees to the doctor, they don't. They frequently tell workers, go home, you're fine. Just go walk it off. Um, This is something we continue to see. We have seen a decrease, though, in reported deaths um, from heat stress. So in the last three years, from 2014 through 2016, there have only been three deaths that have been confirmed. This year, there hasn't been any, so that's good news. Um, However, we continue to see a problem with other heat illness That doesn't result in death so um, from 2014 to 2016 there was over 160 reported incidents and there's many more that aren't reported because farm workers are fearful of coming forward especially in today's political climate they think they have to hide and keep to themselves
1: and tell us about how some uh, crops are being uh, harvested at night Uh, increasingly onions and other ones
2: so some employers have taken it upon themselves to switch the workday from day to night that way workers aren't working under the hot sun and so we've seen it in the onion industry we've seen it in the strawberries we've seen it in wine grapes and we've also seen it with raisins we've also seen it with celery and we've seen this in the central valley of california and in the coachella valley
1: Gabriel uh, Thompson, Jim Cochran's an organic strawberry farmer uh, who's in your book. So tell us the story of Jim Cochran. What makes him unique?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say he's just completely one of a kind. He started in the 70s just north of Santa Cruz. He came out of a cooperative movement that he'd worked in many years in Salinas, Liked the idea of cooperative farmers, but also had some characters in his groups who, when he said something in the cooperative meetings that they didn't agree with, afterwards they would pull a gun and say, you know, just maybe tone it down a little bit, what you're saying. And he's like, okay, you know. You know, it's, cooperatives can be pretty quirky, and they're interesting, but when you're trying to do, like, a, you have a mission-driven thing, you don't necessarily want to have someone pull a gun on you after a meeting. But he, when I think about him, he's a guy who spent much of his life trying to figure out how to make agricultural work for both the environment, but especially for the workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was the first strawberry grower, I think, in the state who went organic. Um, He had actually been pesticide poisoned many times as a grower. Um, He was the first one who really tried to uh, create systems in which the workers had a real say in the work that they were doing and that in fact, invited the United Farm Workers to come down and had to be neutral about it because of labor laws, but said, if you want to come and speak to my workers and present maybe the benefits as you see them for being a union, I'm gonna step back and I'm gonna be as neutral as you're supposed to be in the law, which is much less neutral than anyone else ever is. And so his operation is small. But he's proved that he can grow strawberries organically. He proved he can stru- grow strawberries with a union force. And he also, for many years, is a giant threat to the industry. So when the workers joined the UFW, one of the biggest lawyers, pro-employer lawyers in Ventura, filed a lawsuit saying that Jim Cochran had violated some laws. He, he didn't know anything about he never even been up there. But they saw that this might be a, um, a watershed moment. And so I think what Jim's when I interviewed him and talked about his work was that he feels like they've come a long way on the organic vision that he had. But they hadn't come a long way in terms of the economic justice, fair wages uh, movement that he had. And he saw that as the next big challenge.
1: Blanca Benuelos, for workers we're talking about who are just trying to get through the day, barely make ends meet, they're very vulnerable. Is climate change even on their radar, or is that something like outer space?
2: I would say that they're probably not really thinking about it because they have to support their families. They're low-wage workers who are work- living in rural communities where there not there isn't a lot of options for jobs, and they may talk about how yeah, the sky looks darker today, it's, it's polluted, or it's 112 degrees today, but I have to get the work done. I have a family to support, and I don't want my children to have to work th- this in the future. And so I think they think about it, but it's not something they can seriously consider and say, I'm going to set this aside and find something else to do.
1: And Anthrop, uh, the farming community in the United States has been on the fringe of the climate conversation. It really started with uh, tailpipes and smokestacks, you know, large corporations producing carbon pollution. And the food industry didn't want to be part of it, but it has come, particularly since the Paris Climate Agreement, come more to the center. Tell us how that has happened.
5: Yeah, definitely. I think there's mo- growing awareness among agricultural producers and food businesses about the very significant impact. I mean, agriculture is natural resource-based, and it's both affected by and is affects climate change. So it's a big contributor. Some I would mean, say estimated. it's bigger
1: than uh, electricity and, right. and yeah, cars. Right. Yeah. Estimated
5: anywhere between 20 to 30 percent of all global climate change is attributable to food and agriculture, depending on how you place your boundaries. But it's very significant. Um, so agriculture is a contributor. At the same time, agriculture can be a solution. And having better soils can help to absorb carbon and create what's called a carbon sink, not just release carbon, I mean, agriculture is very heavily um, dependent on fossil fuels in an industrial agriculture system. There's lots of pesticides and fertilizers, lots and lots of transport, tillage and water use. All all that contributes to climate change. But it also has the potential to absorb more carbon in the soils, help to offset or adapt to that climate change through good practices and good soil management practices. So that's something that um, more and more agricultural producers are aware of. They may not a- always talk about it that way, but you know, um, good soil management and good water management can be win-win solutions. I'd also like to say, um, re- in reference to your previous question that you were asking Blanca about community awareness, I totally agree with what she's saying. At the same time, I think that this recent drought has brought more attention to the severe water shortages that have affected thousands of farm workers in California and and other regions of the United States too and literally there were um, thousands of people that were without water supplies and that was partly related to the drought um, well I mean very much related to the drought but in addition I think people saw that began to see the connection more broadly to climate change not just drought as an independent variable I mean the drought is related to climate change. So there are really great organizing groups like the Community Water Center um, and others who are working on uh, understanding water as a right for farm worker families, for rural communities, when they have been heavily affected by the lack of water, L- literally basic drinking water and supplies for showering and for dishwashing and hand washing was missing as a result of of the drought. So unfortunately, the drought brought this into more visibility um, and has resulted in a lot of awareness at different levels.
1: There's a compelling uh, episode in the years of Div- Living Dangerously, which was a series on Showtime where Don Cheadle, the actor, goes to a family. Uh, in the farming area of California. And and, and they're very worried about the, the water situation. And it's very real. And it's, it's a real biography of the water stress that that particular family is, is experiencing.
5: Yes, it's really known um, worldwide, in fact, that climate change is, affects the most vulnerable communities. Um, disadvantaged and poor and in, low income communities have been most deleteriously affected by climate change. So, in the Central Valley is an illustration of that. Some people would say this is also a very clear illustration of what's referred to as environmental injustice. So, you know, it's really manifested in the agriculture sector. I mean, the good news is that, that there's some measurements being taken to address these matters, but, you know, attention on the human dimension as well as the environmental dimension, but there's a long way to go to address these inequities that are born. I mean, basically, the impacts are born inequitably against the most vulnerable populations.
1: Well, Blanca, let's pick up on that in terms of the environmental inequity. Uh, A lot of people think of the environmental movement as being a... uh, white male hiker in some beautiful mountain somewhere wearing Patagonia clothing. uh, (laughs) And that is, you know, part of the uh, environmental movement. Yet, do you think that there is a division that uh, often the the people you represent are overlooked by people who care about the food they put in their body, but not so much about the people who picked it?
2: I I think there can be a division, but I think You know there are programs where people are working together right so california rural Equal assistance which is where i work does have the community equity initiative program and so that's where we do try to work together in these rural communities to address some of the issues that ann was talking about so there could be a division but i don't think it's completely divided you know i think that um you know again the problem is sometimes workers have to think you know, do I have time to go and organize or do I have to go and work, right? And some workers can do both and can become organizers for their community, can become leaders, and many just do not have that, you know, time and and opportunity to do that.
1: Anthrop, people go to the grocery store, they have an opportunity, lots of information about what's organic, what's toxic, what's non-GMO. Uh, Marine Stewardship Council, the Monterey Bay Aquarium certification of what fish you should eat or not. But there is very little information about the labor that goes into the fruits or vegetables. If I go to the store and care about who picked that tomato, uh, there's no information.
5: Yes, that's a real problem. I think it's a huge um, oversight to not recognize that through certification programs. Once again, though, there have been efforts to address this issue. Um, Some people have heard of fair trade. That's mostly associated with overseas um, imports of things like coffee and cocoa and bananas that have fair trade labels, and that often has to do with the amount of value that's going to small farmers, not necessarily the workers themselves. But more recently, there have been some initiatives uh, largely undertaken by farm worker groups, but also in collaboration with other organizations um, to develop certification programs. Um, we need we need the legal processes, as Blanca was talking about. But in addition, there can be market driven um, efforts that consumers can actually ask for better, healthy and fair conditions for farm workers. And there's two major programs that have helped to lead the way. And one of them is called the Fair Food Program and emerged out of Florida out of a group of farm workers. It's called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Have any of you heard of that? It's a group of these farm... are people
1: who are picking tomatoes and took on Taco Bell and exactly. big fast food and they yes. and they won. They better organized.
5: Conditions. Yes. And instead of going to their own employers alone, they also, you know, made a case to get a small increase in their wages. For major um, businesses, retail businesses like Taco Bell and others. Um, so that resulted in a real success in a slight increase. It was a small increase, but successes in getting more um, possibilities for farm workers. And a similar um, initiative has happened in, in California and Mexico called the Equitable Food Initiative.
1: And that's where Costco, Whole Foods, and other retailers have joined similar plans to try to think more, apply fair trade to, uh, to other types of food.
5: Yes, it's not exactly um, fair trade per se, but um, so the partnership has worked together to engage workers and farmers, the farm businesses and the retail organizations to develop better standards. And that's um, now labeled called the EFI Equitable Food Initiative. And you can find that mainly through strawberries in Costco and in um, some Whole Foods markets, but it's very small right now. So if all of you any consumers care about this issue. It's great to go to your grocers and say, have you ever heard of the Equitable Food Initiative or the Fair Food Program? We would love to have you carry strawberries or grapes or fruit or vegetables that is labeled in that way because that gives value to the improvement of uh, the, the health and the fairness of working conditions for farm workers
1: we're talking about the production of food in the era of climate change at climate one we're going to go to our lightning round and ask each of you to respond i'm going to mention a noun and you're going to tell me the first thing that pops into your mind uh, starting with gabriel thompson daca the deferred action for childhood arrivals first thing that comes to your mind necessary (laughs) blanca benuelos u.s secretary of agriculture Sonny Perdue.
2: A little bit scary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Farmer from Georgia. Uh, Anthrop, GMOs.
2: A hot topic.
1: (laughs) Blanca Benuelos kale.
2: Not something I eat. (laughs) (laughs) Is
1: that a nice way of saying yuck? (laughs) Pretty much. Gabriel Thompson, Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. Uh, I am totally uninterested in it. Anthrop, Roundup. Resistance. Uh,
5: GMOs.
1: Blanca Benuelos, your favorite food?
5: Beckles. <laughs>
1: Anthrup, Thrup, your least favorite food?
5: Aha, we just had a conversation about that. Okra.
1: <laughs> Probably have a lot of company there. Um, Gabriel Thompson, last question in our lightning round. The best dish your mother or father cooked at home?
3: My dad would make uh, just cheap, cuts of cheddar cheese in a hard shell that we probably bought in bulk and he would put them in a a little toaster oven and then crack them and I would just eat them. And I remember one time I ate like eight or nine. And so that for me is like that was probably the one of the most delicious meals. And if I ate it today, I'd probably think like, yuck.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That qualifies as cooking. Let's give them a round for getting through that lightning round.
0: You're listening to a conversation about the food system in a hot world. This is Climate One. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about food, farm workers, and climate change with Blanca Banuelos, co-director of the Migrant Unit for California Rural Legal Assistance. Gabriel Thompson, author of Chasing the Harvest, migrant workers in California agriculture, and
1: Anthrop, director of the Food Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Here's Greg. Anthrop organic food is a growing part of American agriculture, uh, high margins, uh, still uh, you know, less than what, 5% or something, but, but growing. Does that money that we pay extra for organics get to the workers?
5: You know, it's variable about the profit margins and how they're distributed. Uh, There is some evidence, at least based on some California studies, that the wages for inorganic farms are slightly higher than the wages for non-organic farms. This is a study from about ten years ago, um, which was published by the California Institute for Rural Studies. And one of my colleagues, Christy Getz, was one of the co-authors. As far as we know, that study has not been done nationwide. So it'd be great information to have. Um, One of the things that is clear, though, about the organic standard is that it is regulated by law, but it does not require increase in wages. So it's not categorically, like if you're organic, you don't necessarily have to adopt better labor standards. Um, I had the opportunity to work with uh, for many years with montera vineyards which is the largest uh, grower of organic grapes in california and actually in the nation and that uh, company you know took this very seriously wage issues the social sustainability the social equity issues were very key to our bottom line as well as the environmental and economic so i think people recognize that treating their labor well is a win-win opportunity and organic growers um you know are often cognizant of the social as well as the environmental but it's not always the case
1: and there's more jobs uh, on organic farms so tell us why why is that
5: yeah um organic tends to be more labor intensive and hire more people um, per farm or per per unit of production and uh, that's largely related to weed control um in non-organic farms you use chemical control and in in organic it needs to be mechanical or else by hand so there's a lot, lot more hand work so, of course, that has trade-offs. It's, it's more difficult work, but it does employ more, more people.
1: Gabriel Thompson, among all the, the farm workers that you profiled, was organic farms something that they would prefer to go to because there's fewer pesticides, or was it just kind of a niche thing that uh, there weren't enough jobs there? Was it a remote option for the workers you, you wrote about?
3: I don't, you know, I did not see that. Um, and I think one thing it's worth thinking about in the context of trying to make things better now is just how few farm workers in California are unionized. And so whatever you're trying to do, what, if you're trying to make it more environmentally sustainable, if you're trying to make the wages rise, if you're trying to make it safer work conditions, this is not the 1960s and 1970s which the UFW was ascendant and had a real power to really reshape the industry. At one point, we had 17 million Americans that were boycotting uh, grapes. That's the biggest consumer boycott in the history. Right now, it's very hard to find farm workers who are members of unions. So I think that's also something to think about the one of the real challenges now looking at trying to improve the the conditions of workers is that union density has dropped so dramatically. And so what we have are these really important networks of organizations like CRLA um, that are on the front line to make sure people aren't getting totally abused but that what you don't have as much as workers in collective action. And that was really what scared growers. You know, mm. they stopped cutting lettuce in Salinas. Growers in the 70s said, oh, we'll bring in some high school students. They can do it. No, they couldn't. The, the lettuce rotted. And so they won uh, contracts that dramatically increased their wages, gave them new protections for pesticides. And so I think that's another big challenge to think about now is that the union landscape has changed.
2: And if I could just add to that, I mean, I think the other thing to consider is that because farm workers are in rural communities, there's much less resources, you know, to get assistance, right? So if someone's, for example, living in the Bay Area of California or Los Angeles or New York, there's gonna be worker centers, there's gonna be unions, there's gonna be, you know, different ways to organize. In rural communities, there aren't any worker centers. There aren't unions there isn't anywhere for them to go, which is what makes it even more difficult for them to stand up and ask for you know, an increase in wages or ask for better working conditions when they have nobody to really go to. Um, and CRLA, I think, does, you know, we attempt to do what we can. We have 20 offices statewide in rural communities, but again, we might be the only ones out there in those communities.
1: We're gonna to go to audience questions and invite you to, to join us. Uh, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering what your panelists think about the effects of the increasing mechanization of agriculture will be on farm workers.
5: Yeah, the observation of course is that it is happening now already that there's increasing automation, increasing mechanization, and it can substitute for labor in certain types of industry, certain types of crops. Um, There are also a lot of crops that don't enable that easily to happen when there are highly perishable types of products. I mean, I think that what's really an interesting opportunity now is that as there is more and more mechanization and computerization of agriculture systems that allows potential for job training skills for workers that have have been currently doing backbreaking work can now be engaged in computer programming, operating equipment that has computer sensors and maintaining it. So it, it actually is an interesting ironic situation that the future of jobs in agriculture could enable more skillful opportunities. I mean, I actually think a lot of farm workers are highly skilled in a particular way, but there may be new types of skills, new training opportunities as we go into the more of the technological dependencies. So, I mean, I think that it is happening, but hopefully there will still be attention given to the incredibly... Um, important needs for job equity and fairness and healthy conditions in the current jobs that are, are there just for, say that when I mean, the
3: UFW was really pushing for higher wages for grape workers the common refrain was that that would lead to mechanization of the work that was in the mid 60s um, and that right now you know there have been companies that have invested tens of million dollars to, to create a lettuce harvesting machine that wouldn't need human labor. It has come to not to date. And there are actually more farm workers in California than there have ever been. And so, the last 50 years of that can happen. I mean, every now and then there will be these articles in the, in the Packer press about like, this new way in which we could like, save all this labor. And then you read it and a couple of years later, you go back and realize, that, oh, in fact, like, the strawberries that they harvested uh, were smushed and either overripe or green. And so I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And at least for the history that we see now, it's proven to be a much more difficult endeavor than...
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One.
2: Um, so how do farm workers learn about protecting themselves from heat stress? So um at CRLA we have a grant from the Department of Labor and we actually go out and do presentations on heat stress. And we try to make these presentations interactive Well, we will have hypotheticals, right? And we'll say, Hey, you know, your coworkers passing out, what do you do? <laughs> you know, and um So we try to make it as interactive as possible. Our presentations are conducted usually in Spanish. We also have an indigenous program um, because um, we're seeing a higher population of indigenous workers who do not speak Spanish or English. And so at CRLA we have community workers who speak additional languages to help us conduct that outreach. Um, Our materials, have a lot of photos of examples of what the employer's responsibilities are. Um, I would also add that Cal which is the state agency I mentioned earlier, from california that is charged with health and safety um, also after 2005 um, began a big campaign about heat stress and so we started hearing radio ads in, in different languages um, there's actually dvds put out in different languages we've seen the dvds in spanish english punjabi um, and in indigenous languages like misteco and we have also seen them come up with a lot of materials and if you actually drive Down the Central Valley in in California, you will see a lot of the billboards that say, you know, heat kills, drink water. So there's a lot of ways that, you know, we try to educate workers.
3: There's an interesting program at uh, UC Davis in which they've, the last year or two, they've equipped farm workers with uh, monitors to, to check on their pulse rates, on their dehydration, so they take blood from them before and after. They haven't compiled all the numbers yet, but they're trying to figure out how how it actually affects them, because most of the heat research looks at things like firefighters or folks in the military, but they haven't done much about like how it actually affects them physiologically in farm workers. And so I, I'm really interested in seeing that, because it's actually cataloging how their body is dealing with the fact of being you know, 10, 11, 12 hours out in the heat, and at what points are they hitting danger zones, and what ways and which maybe the clothing they wear might be able to help. And so that's that's sort of like the cutting edge right now in terms of how what steps could you take to really help them cool
0: down a bit more. Greg Dalton has been talking with Gabriel Thompson, author of Chasing the Harvest, Migrant Workers in California Agriculture, Blanca Banuelos, co-director of the Migrant Unit for California Rural Legal Assistance, and Anthrup, Director of the Food Institute at the University of California Berkeley. We turn now to a conversation with Dolores Huerta, who was on the front lines of the labor movement in the 1960s, working alongside Cesar Chavez. A new movie, directed by Peter Bratt, chronicles the life of the legendary activist from her early days to her continued fight for workers' rights. Greg sat down with the duo to discuss the issues that workers in the fields still face today.
1: How do you see the warming temperatures affecting the cause you've worked on so long, those people working bent over backwards uh, all day in that increasingly hot sun?
4: Well, it affects them in many ways, not only when we're talking about health, uh, but it also, you know, the potential that they might die in this heat. And it's very expensive for the growers also uh, because one of the things that the well, when I was with the uh, with the United Farm Workers, as you know, I'm not there anymore, but when I would sign my contracts, I would make sure that the workers were out of the fields by noon, that they you know, they would start early, they would get out early. Uh, that meant that the growers had to pay them more money because they were working shorter hours. But the things that nobody died. We had 100,000 farm workers under contract, and nobody died. And now they have said, okay, well, you can put shade. But in some of the places, that's very difficult to do because you have these huge acres uh, of land and it's very difficult to get the workers under under shade, you know. And so uh, it, it's very difficult. and I know for the growers it's also more expensive for them. And the other thing, it really uh, cuts the harvest time down where you have to have a shorter harvest, and uh, so you gotta have more workers, more equipment, more packaging, everything. So it's, it just uh, raises the, uh, the amount of money that the growers have to pay to get their, their stuff harvested, picked, and, and shipped, you know? So it's a hardship on both uh, the workers and also for the employers. And of course, for the workers, it's always a health issue uh, whether they can survive the heat. Uh, for the employers, it's, a, it's an economic issue. So the film
1: recognizes you as one of the first environmental justice advocates, and now we have climate justice. So how are those two related, climate justice and traditional environmental justice?
4: Well, in some respects, you might say that climate justice is one of the most important issues because it affects everybody, it affects the world, and if we don't take care of our planet, uh, you know, we're all going to be destroyed, so uh, when you think in terms of priorities and things that we need to pay attention to, uh, this is one of the major issues that is affecting all of our lives throughout the world.
6: I do think that one of the things the film points out, and as we've been learning uh, recently from the headlines, you know, that, that race is still an issue in the United States. And there's a growing food justice movement that also looks at race, how, how race informs the distribution of food and its availability in communities of color. So if you go to the ghettos or the reservations or the barrios, you, know, you see uh, agribusiness and corporations you know, stocking uh, stores with Gatorades and sodas and high fructose corn syrup and deep fried foods, the things that lead to, you know, second stage diabetes, which is an epidemic in our communities. And at the same time, the organic foods that you're talking about, they're available in in more upscale neighborhoods, white neighborhoods like Whole Foods and, and, you know, specialty stores. So again, the food justice movement is something that grows out of the environmental justice movement. But again, it's it's that elephant in the room race that nobody wants to talk about that, that kind of shows the impact. It has on, on, on the various um, things in society.
4: And the marketing, the marketing that goes into the communities of color. You know, when you, we think of the marketing of Coca Cola, for instance, and, and the harm that it causes to our community, and, and their, their political activism in California, they were trying to put a tax on sodas. And here you had Pepsi that was, you know, fighting that. Uh, They just defeated an initiative in New Mexico uh, where they were trying to, again, put a tax on sodas. Because they found if you did put a tax on sodas, it did diminish, uh, you know, the consumption uh, of those uh, sweet beverages. And that's one of the things that we do in my foundation. Uh, We actually uh, work to get all of the sugar sweet beverages out of the schools. And we've been very, very successful, even chocolate milk because it had so much sugar in it. and But we have to, first of all, educate the parents and make them understand and then get our parents to serve on the wellness committees uh, in the different school systems to make sure that they have better lunches and, and definitely take all the sugar sweet beverages out.
1: There's been a big deal made of organic food recently, and people pay more for it those at the grocery store. But do those benefits trickle down to the people who, to the workers in the field?
4: I would say they don't because they, they number one, they don't have access to, uh, oftentimes to uh, fresh fruits and vegetables they, they live kind of in a jungle like in uh, you know the central valley around Delano it's a grape jungle and uh you know this is what it is you get the stock and it's a tomato maybe an asparagus jungle and so people often do not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables even where they live. But the other thing, and by the way, that's one of the things that my foundation is working on, is trying to get the the farm uh, to the table, uh, getting small farmers to provide fresh fruits and vegetables to the community. Uh, But the other thing is they, they don't have the money they don't have the money to be able to buy organic food because organic, organically grown food and fruits and vegetables are more expensive than regular. And then the other thing is that our government, uh, we subsidize meat and we subsidize poultry, but we don't subsidize vegetables in our United States. And the money that we give, uh, and the Department of Agriculture happens to be one of the richest agencies in our government, and they give a lot of money and subsidies to the growers, but they don't subsidize fruits and vegetables.
1: And then climate often thinks, is thought of as a future problem. We we know that it's actually here and now with you know, Harvey and Irma and everything else. So how do you think climate's going to affect your eleven children and the, the children of the farm workers that you that you advocate for?
4: Well, we can say how it's going to affect all of the children of the world because this is something that affects everybody in our world. And the one thing I think that is hopeful is that the young children, they are more aware of what's going on. And I think they are sometimes the ones that have to put pressure on their parents and grandparents that we have to change our behaviors uh, that contribute to uh, the warming of, of our planet. And I think that, you know, on the national level, uh, when we have these deniers and when we have uh, subsidies going to the fossil fuels and uh, we don't have enough acceleration to uh, try to get alternative energy. Maybe uh, what's happening right now today with, with you know, the hurricanes and the floods and the forest fires that people will realize that you know, we don't have a minute to spare. It's got to be right now. And uh, we've got to subsidize uh, electric cars and and all of these other kinds of alternative energies uh, that that we have to start putting implementing like immediately. We don't have time, you know. The clock is ticking. What what's going to happen to our planet? You know, indigenous people. Uh, Peter here is very active in the indigenous movement. You know, you took care of Mother Earth, you know, because this is where you got your life from, and we're not doing
6: that. One of the most important things I think I would like to see happen is by looking at dolores's life and work you can see that all of these issues are interconnected they're interrelated just like the biosphere it's all related so you can't just uh, address racial problems or climate problems or you know problems that affect women or LGBT the LGBT community they're all interrelated and so we need to kind of step back and see that and then form an action plan that addresses them all, all at once and i think you can Dolores, for me, lives at that intersection. And I think we need that insight right now as where we're at, because as we can see, everything is clashing and coming together, and we can't have silo thinking or silo activism anymore. So I hope people see this get inspired by her example and get engaged.
1: A lot of people don't like to talk about it. I mean, mean, that's
6: what the resistance to climate change right now with with this current administration is how it's going to affect the economy. You know, they don't want to stop or slow growth. And if he puts these regulations in place to combat climate change, you know, he says it's going to tank the economy. So, again, it's, it's, it's economics that, that is trumping everything else.
4: And materialism, when we think of all of the energy that is used to create stuff that's junk in our society and things that we don't need, and we have to kind of remember Gandhi's quote, like you have to live simply so that others can simply live.
0: Greg Dalton has been talking with labor leader and civil rights activist Dolores Huerta, co-founder of the National Farm Workers Association, which became the United Farm Workers Union, and Peter Bratt, co-writer and director of Dolores, a feature documentary about the life of Dolores Huerta. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. We'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.
1: Climate One is the special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.